my simple prayer, Father, is that it would be all of you, none of me. You would increase as I decrease, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A couple of things before we get to the text today. Uh, First thing is, uh, I have gotten so many good reports on the sermon that was preached the Sunday before I got back. And the one who preached that sermon is with us this morning. And so, Kevin, I want you to know, I've got requests, many requests, that as soon as possible, we have you to come back. So keep your gun loaded, (laughs) because I'm going to be calling on you soon. (laughs) Keep Keep it loaded. So thank you. Thank you so much. I wish I had been here in person to hear it, but the good thing is, by way of modern technology, uh, and Chris and Cody, I've been able to listen to it, and I want to say God bless you, thank you, think you might have missed the calling, but I'm not sure, I think you're doing pretty good where you are, but but thank you again for being put on the spot like that and doing such a wonderful job, and then I have to say a word of thanks to my wife who said, Listen, we need to uh, we need to we need to decorate a little bit, and so she had me out yesterday uh, rounding up poinsettias, and so my truck was full of poinsettias, and she said we going up there today and we putting up. So she, not we, she is her. She's responsible for. I just did the hauling, <laughs> so she wanted to spruce it up, and so she's responsible for this, and I think she's got other plans. Uh, to do more, but I wanted to thank her for I, I love the touch. Uh, thank God for that. Uh, we are still in Romans. We're in chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 7? We will uh, spend this week and next week in Romans before we launch into uh, our uh, Advent series of sermons, w- of which we'll probably have two or three. So we'll finish up, not finish, because we'll pick Romans back up again in January, but uh, we'll we'll, we'll take a pause to talk about the birth, the coming of our Lord for a few weeks. I got a few things to say about that. In fact, you probably notice I like to say something about that almost every Sunday, (laughs) because it's important. Uh, so it's it's going to be great. But anyway, we are now, now, Paul's has some good things to say as well in Romans chapter 7. 7 verses 7 through 12 is where we are today. Romans chapter 7 verses 7 through 12. And I'm going to ask you because there's not a lot of verses, only five, if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read those verses. Romans chapter 7 verses 7 through 12. And if you've gotten there, you'll find these following words. Uh, As I read from the English Standard Version, the text renders itself this way. Uh, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had been, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Amen. May be seated. Uh, I'm going to steal my subject for this message from Paul's opening to this passage. And it, it, it will come in the form of a question. Is the law sin? Is the law sin? My, my best recollection is that it all began somewhere around the first part of 2013. It was then that my mom began complaining about not feeling well. She couldn't quite put her finger on what the problem was. And I remember her often just saying, that she just felt yucky. She couldn't, she couldn't figure it out. She couldn't put a finger on it. And, and it, it, it got worse as time went on. It got worse as she would suffer with abdominal pain and really bad bouts with nausea. Uh, as it got worse, she went to the doctor. And she went to the doctor a number of times. And the doctors, over the course of a whole year, couldn't figure out what was going on with her. They couldn't figure it out. They would just see her and send her home with pain medicine and nausea medicine without really diagnosing what the problem was. So finally, in the middle of 2014, after spending time in living in Rockwall for a little while, she moved back to Tyler, and in the middle of 2014, she went to see a doctor here in Tyler, and the doctor here in Tyler ordered some x-rays and some tests on her. And for some reason, the doctors that had seen her before had not previously ordered these very same tests and x-rays. But this doctor did, and she ordered the tests and x-rays, and not long after the tests and x-rays, we got the results, and our worst fears were confirmed. It was cancer. My mother was suffering from an advanced form of ovarian cancer. And the doctor, sympathizing with us and wanting to do everything that she could, immediately ordered chemotherapy and surgery. But in the midst of ordering that and uh, scheduling it for my mother, she sat us down and she told us that the prognosis, quite honestly, wasn't good. She said, best case, you're looking at five years. And my sister and I, of course, didn't want to hear that. And we prayed hard that that wouldn't be true. And 
and I don't even, I can't even remember, remember if, if we told my mother that. I think we just, she told, the doctor told us, and I think we just kept that to ourselves. But that's what she said, best case, five years. And so my mother went through the chemotherapy, and she went through the surgery and all the treatments that uh, went along with this terrible diagnosis, and she endured chemotherapy and surgery and all of this. And because of the fact that she was treated, she had surgery, she ended up being able to spend two more years with us until, until August the 16th of 2016 when she went home to be with the Lord. We got two more years after that diagnosis. The tests and the x-rays that were performed that the doctor ordered, which revealed the problem, were understandably unforgiving in their quest for the truth. Those tests were not biased. They were not prejudiced. They were unforgiving and brutally honest in their quest for the truth. And they accomplished their task. Taz was revealing an already existent malady in her body, ovarian cancer. The tests and the x-rays were not the malady. They simply identified the problem and afforded an opportunity for treatment and attention to the problem, which led to two additional years of life. Thus far, uh, our journey through Paul's epistle to the Romans has left us with some rather interesting conclusions. From chapters 1 through 3, we learn that all men are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. From chapters 4 and 5, we learn that true righteousness comes through faith and not through works. From chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7, we learn that in Christ, we are dead to sin. And, we, and because we died with him, we are married to him and are no longer married to the law. And you'll remember from last week, if Satan tries to redraft us into our old ways, I told you as I walked out of here last week, there's something you need to do. Show him the agreement. Because we have an agreement. It may not be a physical, tangible agreement, but we have an agreement with Jesus that said, I have been a party to a funeral where I died and then also to a wedding where I was married with you. And in my spiritual possession is an agreement that anytime the enemy attempts to drag me back into my old ways, I can pull it out and say, I belong to Christ. To this point, an overwhelming majority of Paul's ink related to the law has been extremely negative and disheartening. 
chapters 1 and 2, he reminds the reader that being a knower only and not a doer of the law is unacceptable. In chapter 3, he reminds the reader that the law is incapable of providing salvation, but rather condemnation. Chapter 4, the law makes way for the wrath of God. Then last week, in chapter 7, verse 5, we learn that the law arouses our sinful passions. Not good news so far as it relates to the law. Not the ink that's been written about the law so far has been pretty tough. So now, on the heels of all of this bad ink about the law, and in an effort to bring clarity, Paul poses a question that on the surface seemingly has an obvious answer. His question is this, is the law sin? Based on much of what we've read thus far, one may be, may be inclined to answer yes to this question, but Paul quickly clears this up with the factual answer to his own question, both in verses 7 and in verse 12. He says in verse, verse 7, by no means. And then in verse 12, he says this about the law. So the law is holy. It's not sin. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In essence, what he will say in the remainder of verse 7, all the way through verse 11, is that much like my mom's exams and x-rays, the law is not the problem. It simply reveals what's already present in hopes that it will be addressed and treated, leading to not just a couple more years of life, but to everlasting life. That's his hope. The law's hope is that it would reveal something in us that needs to be addressed so that we will then be invited to and escorted into everlasting life. Uh, how is it treated? It's, it's not treated. This, this, this condition can't be treated by chemotherapy. It has to be treated by hemotherapy. There's some doctors in the house, and they know that's a real term. I didn't make it up. Rick said, yeah, that's, he must, no, I didn't go to medical school, Rick. Hemotherapy is, is a treatment that's used when someone donates blood to somebody else to treat a condition that that person has that can't be treated any other way. And I stop by to tell you, as we make our way to talking about Jesus, you know I always have to tell you about Jesus. He donated his blood in a hemotherapeutic treatment so that we would have access, not just to a few more years, but to everlasting life in his kingdom. So then, in verses 7b through verse 11, Paul gives us some new news about the law as he contrasts in these verses the law 
and sin. First thing he does in verse 7b is he says to us, by way of what he says in this verse, that the law sheds light on sin. What he says in, in, in the second part, first part of verse 7 says this, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Then he says this, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall covet. The law, my friends, sheds light on sin. The law is critical to an accurate comprehension of the nature of sin. Without it, we can't really comprehend the depth and the depravity that is associated with the sinful nature. Without the law, we wouldn't understand. The law reveals sin so that sin, just like the x-ray, the law reveals sin so that sin, when it is revealed, can be addressed. That's what happens. The law marks out. Bob Deffenbaugh says this, and I, I stole this quote from him. This is what he says. He says, the law marks out the spiritual minefields which we will encounter in life so that we might avoid them. The law does not identify that which is good as sin so that we might be kept from enjoying it, but that which is evil so that we might be kept from suffering sin's consequences. That's what the law does. The law posts warning signs around poison waters so that we might not drink of them. That's what the law does. Paul here in verse 7 quotes from the Ten Commandments, specifically Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Here's what it says. You know it. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox. Or his donkey. I just pause right there because it's good. I'm reading from the ESV. Some of y'all have the KJV out there, and it's a little bit more of a colorful word for donkey. <laughs> it's in the Bible. I mean, you know, it's there. Or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, it's comprehensive. You, 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 you know what coveting is? You know what it means to covet? Here's what it means to have an inordinate and wrongful desire for something that belongs to somebody else. That's what it means to covet, to, to, to be jealous, to be envious, to want what somebody else has and not be satisfied with what you have. And Paul says, if the law hadn't said you shall not covet, he would not have been made aware what covetousness was and its dangers. Now, don't be mistaken. Paul is not using this as an opportunity uh, to, to, to blame the law for his sinful acts, right? He's not doing that. He's, he's, he's not attempting to blame the law for his sin. He's simply saying that the law clarifies and identifies his sin and leaves no room for doubt. 
you can't be going around blaming it on other stuff and on the law. It's our fault. But what the law does is the law with brutal honesty, just like the test, with brutal honesty, reveals and, and, and clarifies and identifies for us so that we no longer have an excuse. And say, well, I didn't know that was. So here's the thing. We are, even if the law didn't exist, there's something on the inside of us, Kevin, that says it's wrong for me to want what you have in an inordinate way. I can say, you know, I wish I was as smart as Kevin. I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. But when I start saying he shouldn't be that smart, I should have the wisdom he has. He doesn't deserve it. it I should be the one that has that. I, Sam shouldn't drive the car. He, why can't I drive a car like Because I'm going to put all his tires on flat. Some of y'all have done that. Don't, don't, don't look at nobody. You know, in your wilder days. <laughs> Some of y'all have taken, you know, they call it keying. Don't laugh, because if you laugh, you're going to give it away that you probably did that to somebody. <laughs> it's not good to covet. And on the inside of us, whether the law was present or not, we know there's something that rises up on the inside that convicts us that doing things like that is absolutely, positively against what God wants for us. But because the law came into existence in Exodus chapter 20, even without that feeling, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's donkey. Anything that somebody, and Paul simply says, this clarified it for him. Which leads us then to, to his next point. It's in verse 8, and here's his next point. His next point is this, the law was no match for sin. The law was no match for sin. You know why? Before we even get there, because most of us have found out that sin is fun. Y'all looking at me funny. Somebody say, man, don't, make, don't leave me out here by myself. Sin feels good for the moment, <laughs> doesn't it? And so because of that, you know, oftentimes uh, we, we, we operate according to instant gratification and whatever feels good is what we like to do. No matter the consequences later, oftentimes we do whatever moves us right now. And because of that fact, sin is no match or the law is no match for sin. So in verse 8. In verse 8, in verse 8, <laughs> thank you, brother. <laughs> in verse 8, <laughs> in verse 8, this is what Paul says. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds 
of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin, my friends, is cunning. Sin is wise. And sin is well aware of the areas to attack or to seize on in our lives that offer the best chance at succeeding. Do I need to say that again? Sin is cunning. Sin is wise. And sin realizes the best areas to seize on in our lives that would provide for sin the best opportunity for success. In other words, sin knows you very well. And so Paul says, says this, that sin seizes on an opportunity through the commandment. As Paul states in chapter 7, verse 5, sin is no stranger to the temptations of the forbidden fruit syndrome which the law arouses. Sin is well aware of that syndrome that we have. We all have it. All of us are guilty. All of us are guilty of the forbidden fruit syndrome. Just when you get out on the road, I told y'all a couple weeks ago, I hate bad drivers. When you get out on the road, there are going to be some signs on the side of the road. No matter where you are, you'll see them. There's going to be some numbers on that sign. And those numbers are supposed to determine how fast you drive. And some of y'all are looking away because you know where I'm going with this. And I have to say I have to include myself in this. I'm guilty too. But most of us like to test the numbers. So if the numbers say 50, we push it to 60. Numbers say, so look, when I was growing up, the speed limit on the freeway, on the highway was 55. Y'all remember that? Stay alive, 55, something like that. They had a slogan, didn't they? Now the speed limit is 75. And I don't know about you, but that's plenty fast enough for me. 80 is about as far as I, but I'm on the highway all the time, and people's feeling me 75. I'm doing 80, and they zooming by me like I'm sitting still. Because we have this forbidden fruit syndrome that we are uh, afflicted with that says if the sign says keep off the grass I'm going to walk on the grass if the sign says 75 I'm going to drive 90 just to see how far I can push it and then when the dude with the black car with the white doors pull you over you want to beg for mercy the ladies start batting their eyes and the men start and don't, don't so, you know, coming up with excuses we, and so sin realizes that we have this issue. That anytime there's something forbidden, that is the thing that arouses us. That is the thing that tempts us. We'll get to this next week, but Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. He says this in 22 and 23. Paul says, For I delight... In the law of God, in my inner being. But, he says, I see in my members another law 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's simply saying that the law is no match for sin. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but, I, you know, I got to stop here because uh, I always do. The law is no match for sin. Brother Sam, you know where I'm going. The law is no match for sin. That's the reason why we need a Savior. That was an amen point, spot right there. That's the reason why, all the more reason why we are in desperate need of a Savior because the law is no match for this syndrome that we have. And Paul says it. John Phillips, in his commentary exploring Romans, says this, The law always reveals an attitude within the sinner that wants to try to get away with breaking it. This is exactly the process that brought sin into the world to begin with. God made man in his image and placed him in a perfect environment. God gave man access to everything in creation with the exception of one tree. Genesis chapter 2, yet when the law was given, there arose an opportunity for sin to come alive. This law proved, Philip says, to be the springboard Satan used to entice man into sin. It's always been around since Genesis chapter 2, and it's around right now. We need to leave here today, if you didn't come here with this understanding and this reality, leave here today knowing that the law or you alone are no match for sin. Sin and sin's father, Satan, will have his way with you if you stand alone. Somebody here can testify that in life, and maybe it wasn't that long ago, maybe it was just yesterday, Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was this morning when you got up that you had a bout with sin and sin's father and you lost and sin had his way. You know why? You know match. That's why we need a savior. What's his name? <laughs> so, then, so then we move on. Uh, and, and so, so, so sin, uh, the law is no match for sin. And ever since Adam ate forbidden fruit, we have all been fond of forbidden paths. It started with him. And ever since then, we have this syndrome. But then lastly, Paul points out something else about the law. In verses 9 through 13, this is what Paul points out about the law. The law's intent was life, but sin brought death. The law's intent was life. Sin, though, brought death. Here's what it says in 9a. I was once alive apart from the law. I like the way the New Living Translation renders this part of this verse. It says this, at one time I lived without understanding the law. This may be a reference 
to a point in Paul's life when he was complacent and insensitive to the full demands of the law. He says, uh, I was once alive apart from the law, or at one time I lived without understanding the law. Uh, it simply says that there was a time in his life that he didn't fully comprehend or understand. Then in 9b, it says this, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Sin came alive and I died. Knowing better for us and for Paul should translate to doing better. Knowing better should translate to doing better. The law brings with it a greater level of accountability to God. But with Paul, as is the case with us, this accountability brings the power of sin to life. And as a result, God's judgment ensues and increases. Sin came when the commandment came, sin came alive, Paul says, and I died. Verse 10 says this, the very commandment that promised life. First part of verse 10, the very, what does he mean by that? The very commandment that promised life. Here's what he means. The Old Testament promised a blessed and secure life to those who obeyed the law. In Leviticus 18.5, it says this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, it says this, I gave them statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Simply put, the law's intent was benevolence. The law's intent was to bring life. It was not to usher in death. And so in other words, if, if mankind was able to keep God's law, the only outcome would have been life and life abundant. But the sad thing is, is that mankind was unable to keep the law. And because of this, death came. But the intent was life. 10b says, prove to be death to me. 10b, prove, it proved, the law proved, though, to be death to me, even though its intent was life. Paul, like us, inherited from Adam a strong tendency to sin so that we don't naturally do what God commands, but rather we resist and disobey him. In these instances, instead of the law bringing life, it confirms and exposes our lost and helpless condition and our need for a savior. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the, the, ver the very chapter in, that I just read to you from, I read to you from 11, verse 13 says this. But the house of Israel rebelled. Here's what happened then and what oftentimes happens now. The law, the intent of the law was life, 
if it was obeyed, but it was not obeyed. So because it was not obeyed, death ensues. Here's what Ezekiel says. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned because of that death ensues. And so the law, the law, its intent was life, but sin, when it enters, it brings death. Just as in verse 11, just as in verse 8, sin is cunning. In Romans chapter 7, verse 11 says this, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It sounds very similar to Romans 7, verse 8, when it talks about the seizing of an opportunity is what sin does. Just as in verse 8, sin is cunning and wise and will seize an opportunity to, to deceive just as the serpent did in the garden. It's the reason why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, he gives us some great advice, gives us some advice that all of us need to heed because sin brings death. And sin, uh, Peter says, the enemy, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. And that's what sin does. Sin is like a heat-seeking missile. It's searching for you right now. It's not just searching for you. It's searching for an opening that it can enter in, right? It's searching for an uncovered place. It's searching for a place that you're not paying attention to so that it can devour you. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, gives us some very wise advice when he says, put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the KJV says, the wiles of the devil. And he is a wily one. He's seeking whom he may devour. And Paul says the only way to avoid it is to put on the whole arm of God. That's the only way. And then that's the reason why he says it. In Ephesians, I like what he says, though, after verse 11 in Ephesians 6. And I'm going to close by reading to you what he says in 12 through 17, 12 through 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. He gives us and you know what it, you know what it is. You're familiar with it. But I think today, because we're talking about the fact that 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 the law is no match for sin and that. Uh, law, the law brings life, but sin brings death, and that sin is roaming around right now. The, you know what? Sin is even in this place. Somebody right now, you're hearing something in your ear, and it's not me. <laughs> I know I'm loud, <laughs> but sin is louder. Because there are some thoughts right now. I don't know what they are. I'm not even going to venture to go down trying to figure out. But there, uh, no matter where you go, Paul just said it in Romans 7, 22, 23. We're going to deal with it next week when I would do good. Even when I'm sitting in church, evil is always present with me. 
good that I try to do, I can't do the good and the bad things that I don't want to do. Even while I'm trying to listen to the preacher, sin is always trying to get a hold to me. And so Paul says your only hope is to put on the whole arm of God. And here it is, he says, for, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against authorities, against principalities or cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces. Listen, your battle is not against humans. It's not against mankind. That is not where sin attacks. Sin may use mankind, but it's higher than that. And you have to be prepared to fight this fight with something that's higher than what we can see or even imagine. It is a spiritual battle against spiritual forces in heavenly places. He says, therefore, right? To me, Charlotte, I get excited when I see therefore because I know Paul is getting ready to give me an answer to my problem. He's getting ready to help me with my situation. He's getting ready, John, to tell me how to fight the wiles and the schemes of this evil one, how to fend off sin. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, just keep standing. Even when you feel like falling, keep standing. How do you continue to stand when the enemy is attacking and is attacking, he says, this is how you do it. You have to have on the belt of truth. You have to have on the breastplate of righteousness. You have to have on the full armor of God in order to be able to stand. You've got to have on the shoes of peace. You've got to have on the shield of faith. You've got to have on the helmet of salvation. And the only offensive part of this armor, he says, you must have with you at all times. And it doesn't mean that you walk around with it in your hand. It means that you walk around with it in your heart. It's the only offensive part, the sword of the spirit. It's what you fight with, Dennis. The sword of the spirit, which is the which is the, which is the, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my pathway. I've got to have the word of God with me because it is the weapon that I fight off sin with. And alone, apart from the presence of God and the word of God, I am no match. For sin. But I thank God I have help. And so Paul closes in 12 and 13, reminding us that the law is not the problem. The law was intended to be good. So here's what he says. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin 
and through the commandment by, might become sinful beyond measure. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But are we able to keep it? Absolutely not. Our only hope is the one, is in the one who we are in. And we are in Christ. And he gives us hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. And we praise you for your word. Help us, Lord, to please you and to look to you. We thank you for your law, for your law reveals things that we would have otherwise never known. And we thank you for your solution to the law in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Warren is going to come.